recording. Okay. Um, I thought this was interesting. I'm going to come back here. Um, the uh, I noticed that the the uh, National Geographic uh, did a really good job on trying to lay out, give you an idea of some of these ancient sites that we've been talking about. And so here is their representation. Um, talking about is this Jesus tomb you get a sense of uh, the stone rolled away and that that's actually how he would have been laid in the tomb generally what happens in these first century uh, uh, tomb areas the body lays out here like this for about a year well well it uh, decomposes and everything and it, en it ends up with the bones and then generally behind there is this big antechamber that sits right back in here, and then they will ultimately place the bones with, with everything else, with the, with the bones of their fathers. They talk about that. That's really what they're, they're talking about. So the purpose of this stone and everything, and then when somebody else dies, there are a couple of these, these little cutout places in the rock where the body can then decompose, and that's how the funeral things went back then. Okay? Now... So what, what, they, what National Geographic has done is tried to lay it out, kind of get an idea. So, so here's, the, here's the tomb over here to this area right here. And then the, the belief is, is that it would have been fairly close over here to Golgotha. So here's the quarry area from which they, they hewed a lot of the, the stones of the temple. Uh, right here would be the Antonio uh, Fortress right here. And then the Temple Mount is right over here to the extreme right, temple here, the fortress here, the walls. So this is just outside of, uh, just to the north of the ancient city. And then if you're going to look at this over a period of time, uh, he crucified just outside of, okay. Then what happened is when Hadrian and the Romans come in and conquer after, uh, particularly after the, uh, uh, the second rebellion, about 150 AD, uh, they actually, because they wanted to put down all kind of Judaism, they built, we think, a uh, temple of Venus on top of the tomb and, and Golgotha. Okay? So, so you would have had this Roman fort then... So that's Hadrian's temple over the top of it. And then when Constantine's mama gets involved, Helen, she's going to make sure that, that it gets... So they tear, down, they tear down the temple of Venus, they restore everything, and they actually create a little basilica, over the, a rotunda over the top of it with the, this little nave area right here where the tomb is. And then another, and then another uh, area over here where it would have been, they believe the the uh, where his body was prepared in the crucifixion area, and then a little courtyard in between here. Okay, so Constantine's mother, Empress Helena, uh, and here she claims to have found crosses, the original crosses. So now you have the relics that can go out to the Christian world. Okay. All right, so what happens then over time? This is Constantine's church. 
Then we get to about the 11th century, and the Crusaders are going to come rolling in, and they want to make it a bigger deal. So when they come in, here's still the original tomb area. Now they're going to begin to adjoin, and now you're going to get the whole, uh, the, the full uh, temple area. And they want to have one big basilica. And so, that, so today, this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, and so when you come in to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you're kind of walking in. The, the slab area there is where they believe that he, the uh, body was prepared. Then you kind of walk from there, and you go down inside this rotunda area here. And, and there's no way to describe this other than it's just sheer cacophony. There is long lines that are snaked around this, around the tomb area to be able to then go down inside. But all the way through, people are chanting the rosary. Um, and, and this is more innate than you can possibly imagine what, is, what has occurred over time. Um, and again, the entrance into it is right here. So if you ever get a chance to go there, this is the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, and this is why, and, and like we talked about last time, where they've done some excavations underneath this area just to make sure the footings and everything were all right, and they found ancient tombs down there that date back to the first century. So there's a so pretty good chance that this, this is certainly a real possibility, Church of Holy Sepulchre. Okay? Questions on, on that? Just kind of watch the evolution over time of what's been ha what happened at this a uh, very sacred spot. Okay? Is this actually down in that quarry? Yes. Yeah, this goes right over the top of what, where the quarry was. Um, so the original footings over the top of the quarry were built by Hadrian, the Roman em emperor, over the top of it, and he built the platform on which they're going to put that. And so when... when uh, uh, Helena and then the Crusaders are going to try and build all this. They're actually building on the footings of the ancient Venus temple uh, that was there. Okay, But you can still get down underneath it and see the original stuff that was even underneath the footings for the, for the Venus temple. Okay, yeah? Excuse me, I came in late. So this, you're saying this is where the Christ was crucified? This is the traditional... This is the traditional site back to the third century, believing that this is where he was buried in here. It's a burial area. Golgotha would have been in this area right here. Okay? Not all the other areas they say is... I mean, isn't there another area that they actually say... Yeah, and traditionally, again, this is more... This is more Armenian, Catholic. This is the way they look at it. Uh, more in kind of evangelical Christianity and us... We tend to look at the garden tomb area uh, and Golgotha in a, in a different place. So that you kind of get these two competing kind of things. Most of the New Testament scholars that I'm listening to at BYU are really tending, because of the renovations that were done uh, about 40 or 50 years ago underneath there, they're kind of persuaded it probably is more in this area because the tombs are right. The way that the the it, it, the way it's laid out is is right. So. Uh, no, 
What's that? How far? How far? Uh, it, how far from where? Oh, oh. Um, it doesn't matter whether you go to the this traditional site or whether you go to the ones that we as Christians tend to revere. You're talking about a distance of about uh, 100 yards, 150 yards. So the belief was is that it was a very short distance from because they would do the crucifixion. You could do a crucifixion anywhere. But in this case, they were doing it in the rock quarry, we think, on the north end of, the, of Jerusalem, take him down from here, and then immediately there was a tomb waiting, Joseph of Arimathea's. But, these are, but, but there's a difference between common tombs and, and these kind of these royal, rich, wealthy tombs. They are much bigger in deal, and that's what they found underneath the basilica, was this first century, and again, very, very short distance from what we see as Golgotha. Okay? All right. So, with that, I just I thought that was kind of interesting in light of what we've been talking about. All right. Yep. All right. So, questions on any of that? Just kind of fun. Archaeology in Jerusalem is is uh, fun because uh, in order to get to like the first century, you've got to dig through the you know the twelfth century and the eighth century and get down to the first century. But underneath that is uh, you know sixth century BC and all that. So, but you got to destroy the stuff on the top to get to the so so it's hard to to do that. But all right now. As we get started, though, today, as this is a backdrop, as we're, start, as we're going to talk today about uh, the beginnings of the church uh, and the ascension of the Savior, uh, I want to back up with, with, give you two ideas that we can kind of chew on for just a second, okay? The first one is the theology of words. Uh, uh, we had, at a uh, fireside last night, 15th Street, uh, in Louisville that we had a chance to sing at, and then I spoke, and I talked about the fact that we have words in our, in our uh, language in the church that we use over and over and over and over. And the longer we use it and the more we use it, uh, it actually doesn't necessarily cheapen it, but it makes it so common that we sometimes lose the awe associated with that and the meaning behind it. Uh, and one of those words that I, I think uh, we use a lot, I don't want to say overuse, but I think the meaning behind it gets lost sometimes, uh, is the word atonement. The atonement of Jesus. Now, unfortunately, the way that we have tended to kind of go with this, uh, it's almost like, uh, and I'm trying not to be sacrilegious here, it's, it's almost like we treat the atonement like, like uh, Mary's uh, jar of spikenard that she was going to anoint the Savior with. It was like, it's this precious gift, and, and you hold on to it, and then when somebody needs it, it's like you break it open and you apply it topically. And we tend to do that, I think, sometimes with the atonement if we're not careful. Somebody's grieving. 
What, what needs to happen? Well, they need the, atone the atonement. Okay, take some of the atonement out and apply it. Okay? Somebody's going through a difficult moment in their life. What do they need? Well, break out the atonement. That will help. Uh, somebody is, has, is going through a rough stretch and they need to repent. What are they going to need? Break out the atonement. There it is. And so we're going to apply the atonement. But what happens when life is going really, really well? Do we need to, do we need to break out the atonement? No, we're going to put the atonement on the, on the shelf. It's a, I don't need you at the moment. Thank you so much. I'm glad that that's there as my backup plan. But I think I got this. I think I'm handling it pretty well until the moment I'm not handling it well. Then go back to the jar and use the atonement. I mean, am I missing by much? That we, that, that we, in doing that, I think we miss even the greater power and awe that is this, this uh, seminal sacrifice of the creator of the world. So here's what's fascinating about that. Uh, the other thing that, that we will do is that we, we actually make the atonement into an event. If I were to ask, generally, when did the atonement happen? What would people say? In the Garden of Gethsemane, you know. And, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times we even leave out the cross. Well, the atonement happened in the Garden. And when was that? Well, it was like, you know, over 2,000 years ago. That's when the atonement happened. That's when he purchased us. That's when he, he did what he did. And so now it's available to us when we need it. But the atonement was an event. Which actually then makes it a little bit tougher. If I say to you, somebody is grieving, well, they need the atonement. Okay. What does that mean? How would you today apply the atonement? I'm in trouble. I need this. So I'm going to go to this gift that I received from 2,000 years ago. What does the treatment look like if you're using the atonement? They have to accept it. It has to be somehow accept. Okay, so I'm going to accept the atonement. Okay, uh, he did it. <laughs> uh, it happened. Uh, I believe it. Is it simply just acknowledge remember? Yeah. Okay, I remember that it happened. So I'm. <clears throat> life is really hard. I come up, maybe I take the sacrament, and I remember that he did it. Then we, then we walk out of the room, or we walk out of church, and the trial is still there. We, how do we apply the atonement? Do we absorb it? We, somehow, we, right? Right? See the battle? Yeah? Um, like the day after my husband passed away, my friends took me to the temple. And that session was like, I... The officiator, I, he, and I did not know him, and he didn't know me, but he just had tears on his face so much a part of that session, but there was a great comfort and power in the house of the Lord. Okay. So, so for you, part of accessing the atonement was the ability to utilize the temple and the, and the spirit and the strength that is there. Okay. I think that's a step that's there. How else would you utilize the atonement? 
especially if it's an event from 2,000 years ago. You know, the, the atonement is an expression of Christ's love for us. Right. What he was willing to do uh, to prove to us that he loved us. Okay, so, when, so why do we need to know that? It's because we don't love ourselves sometimes. We are hard on ourselves. We beat ourselves up. And we need to know that if God loved us, then maybe we are lovable. Maybe we should love ourselves. And maybe instead of beating up on ourselves, we... Right we should uh, uh, obey the commandments and become more like And I, I think that's another step in, in the right direction. But if you listen, what we're saying is we can explain it. How do we apply it? We can describe it. How do we use it? And that I don't think we're as good at. Yeah. Don't we use it all the time? Well, more than we know, and I, I want to talk about that in a second. But how are we doing it? If you're going to say to somebody who now needs to use the atonement, okay, give me some directions. I can, well, it was wonderful. It was an incredible gift. Uh, he loves us. Uh, that sacrifice. He bled from every poor. Yep. And now what do I, how do I apply it in my life, in my circumstance? Just maybe our relationship with the Savior. Ah, okay. There we go. Okay. Now, if, if there's a relationship involved here, doesn't that begin to change what we do? Now, fascinatingly enough here, uh, this is one of those times we've talked that by history, where did the word atonement come from? And it came from Tyndall, uh, who is at, as, as trying to put together, and he's looking at a phrase. He's looking at some words, and he says, in his mind, this doesn't adequately describe it. Uh, I think he's drawing uh, from, from an earlier writer, Julian of Norwich, who talks about uh, our relationship with the Savior as we need to be one or at one. Uh, there's a oneing process, Julian said. Okay? Um, but, but this is one of those times when I think the word that he was trying to, that he was changing from the Latin Vulgate into the English may have been better in some ways left the way it was because I think it describes this better. Yeah. I was just going to say that uh, this atonement is us becoming one with God and it defines how we return to our Heavenly Father as prescribed. Ah. That in our personal lives, we need to take the position that we are turning back to the Lord as our guide. Ah. We're going to set aside our own will. We're going to learn His will. We're going to be obedient to His will. There you go. And then we are going to make and keep the covenants that the Lord offers. Okay, so what was the word? What was the word that Tyndale translated into atonement and created atonement? What was the original word? Yes. The original word was reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled with somebody? Drawn together or drawn back together. Right? Uh, I'm, I'm working with a, a man right now that uh, has been... Uh, by, by the courts has been distanced from his daughter. Okay? He doesn't have uh, custody visitation rights. 
And the, and the court is trying to perform a reconciliation, which is what are we trying to do? Bring them back together. Okay, we're trying to bring them back into the relationship that they had prior to the split. That is reconciliation. So if he's if Paul is writing in Romans, which he does, about the reconciliation power of Christ, he's talking about we're trying to do what? Restore a relationship that was there previously. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm just looking at the word the cilio is often associated with movement. Yeah. But it's also required, that's right. But what we're saying is, if, if I'm going to reconcile with you, that requires you to make some movement. But what does it also require of me? I also have to move. I've got, we've got to come, listen to our words, we've got to come together. That doesn't mean I wait here and the atonement comes to me. I take a gift. It means I am I've got to make movement in your direction. Okay? Now, at one level we call that repentance. Repentance is, is literally meaning what? Turn around. So if at the very least, reconciliation is turning around and doing what? Moving. Together. Coming closer. Okay? That is reconciliation. Now, the thing I love about the word reconciliation uh, as, a, as a part of atonement is that it suggests movement and effort and energy and a process, not just, I will wait here on the couch and the atonement will be given to me like a gift on Christmas morning. Okay? Yeah. Okay. When you reconcile something, there's movement on both sides. There is movement on both sides. Right. Savior's already done his part, right? I mean, he, he, he's done his part. 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 He's done the son, because that is, that if you want, in a nutshell, reconciliation as, as covered by the term atonement, in reconciliation, what is the son doing? Returning. He's having to turn around from where he was with a plan. It was a dumb plan. <laughs> I'll save myself. I'll work for my dad. But he's going to come back. But what does the father, the benefactor, do? He comes out. And, it said, and then when the second son messes up and doesn't want to come in, he doesn't want to reconcile. He's not coming into the feast. He's staying out and complaining. And then what does the father do? He reconciles. He gets up from the feast. He goes outside into the courtyard in the, in the view of everybody else, and he reconciles and he pulls the son in. Okay? Yeah. One thing I'm kind of getting out of this discussion is that the atonement is it's a 
There you go. And over with, it's continuous. That's why it's an infinite atonement. Yes. And you get a sense. So is the atonement a gift that was given 2,000 years ago and then we just use as necessary? If it's reconciliation, how often are we involved in the reconciliation with the Savior? Daily. Every moment. You see how it's continual? Yeah. Right. It is him extending himself out to assist us in our return. Please come back. He comes out, yeah. puts his arm around us, and he escorts us back. I, I think that's a bre- have to go back to what is true and what is right. I, I'm going to bring... I, I just need... It's like G, the, Jehovah was always saying to Israel, just turn around. Even though you have been doing what you're doing, just turn around. Now, and I will be there. I will be waiting. My hand will be still. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have wanted to do what? Gather you as a hand gathereth her chicks. That is reconciliation. That is atonement. But it doesn't have to be a long process. It's merely of a... Oh, it's quick. Elder Holland says you can repent very, very quickly. Okay, I keep trying to say to people walking through the disciplinary council thing that I see in my office, it's like, dude, you've already repented. It happened. <laughs> You're done. Now, the process of a disciplinary council over a year or something like that is to help you change behaviors and patterns to make sure that this, that you, this doesn't repeat itself. But the actual repentance process and the forgiveness from the Savior, boom. He was there. The minute you turned around, he's got you. Come on back. I got you. Okay? So, that's why this reconciliation... The thing I like about the term reconciliation is that it's an ongoing healing relationship. So, when we're talking about somebody utilizing the atonement, we're talking about them reconciling. And that means a whole pattern of reading more and studying more and being involved and loving loving and ministering and all those things that are endemic to somebody who has returned to a relationship and putting energy and enter into it not just maybe hoping for a one-time topical ointment that just kind of solves it and then wonder how come it didn't happen and maybe I don't trust God because the atonement didn't work okay that, that's, that, I think, is the power of that. Okay? Now, what we're, we're going to watch it happen. We're going to watch it happen in Acts 2 as this process comes to fruition. Okay? All right. But before we do, there's one more term I want to uh, put out there. Sometimes I put things on the table. Then you see them, and then you go, okay, and then we'll bring all the ingredients together. So this is the first one. Let's understand that atonement is reconciliation. Here's, oh, Paul, by the way, is going to say, uh, for while we were enemies, and like the natural enemy, natural man is an enemy to God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. The purpose of the Savior was to reconcile us with the Father. How much more are we saved by his life after having been reconciled? But not only that, we also rejoice in God through the, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Next semester, we're going to talk about the journeys of Paul. 
We'll follow his journeys. And then as we stop in Ephesus and we stop in Corinth and we stop in Galatia, we'll have a chance to kind of look at what he said and what he was writing to these people. But for Paul, it was all about reconciliation. And in essence, he was also going to reconcile the Gentiles to Abraham. It was about bringing everybody back together and ultimately to present them to the Father. Okay. All right, so, so one other word. You have found uh, one of the words that we have had in the Book of Mormon, sometimes a little discussion about, comes out of the Book of Ether. And it's this one. We know this one well, right? If men come unto me, I will show unto them their what? Weakness. I give unto man weakness. Uh, and I would break that out to say weakness, human frailty, uh, fallenness, mor mortalness, but also weaknesses, our personal weaknesses. I think both words, both meanings are subsumed in that. Okay? I give them weakness that they may be humble. My grace is sufficient for all men that humble. For if they will humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then I will make weak things become strong unto them. Can you see the reconciliation in that? Okay? All right. Now, right across this quote from Brigham Young. Uh, and that, that uh, I, I heard it, and, I, and it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And, and I kind of, my head had to, chew on this for a while, but I realize that I like this in the context of what we're going to talk about. Here, here's Brigham Young's quote. The gospel causes men and women to reveal that which would have slept in their dispositions until they dropped into their graves. Okay. Let that one wash over here. The plan by which the Lord leads the people makes them reveal their thoughts and intents and brings out every train of disposition lurking in their beings. Every fault that a person has will be made manifest in order that it might be corrected by the gospel of salvation. Okay, now... Take a look at that for a sec. Tell me what you think. What, what would be your response to that? Or put that in different words. Yeah. So when I continually see my weaknesses, it's not about being this horrible person. It's this process by which the Lord helps us grow and learn and heal us and strengthen us. The purpose of the gospel is to, to rise. Our, it's, like, it's like refining gold, right? We're going to boil it and the gold rises to the top. Well, so does the dross. The, the, that stuff rises up so that we can do what? So we can remove it. And what happens without the gospel? He says, it remains hidden in our dispositions. Which I often have found as I have viewed some family members who have left the church that this is the reason they don't want to return. Yeah, because, because I'm going to be judged. People are going to see my stuff. Yeah, well, and not only that, that's kind of embarrassing. If I'm going to show up with my faults, uh, and it's going to be on display, am I comfortable with that? You know, a big problem is, is we know we're unhappy or we're not 
as happy as we think we should be, but we don't know why. Yeah. Unhappy. We don't know what's causing it. You think you're doing everything right, and yet you're in the gall of bitterness. And the reconciliation of the gospel, it, it like Brigham Young is saying here, it helps us to uh, see clearly what is our problem. Right. You know, we're not kind. We're not generous. We're not charitable. And everything we do in the gospel helps us see see that. Uh, you know, I spent all my life reconciling. Uh, I'm a project planner. I did big projects, not little ones. And and the so I plan, but then I, and that takes a little bit of time. Ten percent of a project, but ninety percent of the project is identifying where you are varying. I mean, the, the reconciliation is is what's different between the way yes. the project is going and what you plan. There you go. So you identify the the. Our unknown problems. Okay, so if you can see this, we have a bigger name we call this. It's called Judgment. Judgment Day. Judgment Day is an audit. <laughs> judgment Day is an audit. We're going to find the errors and correct them. And then when they're corrected, then it gets the final stamp, and off you go exalted into the eternities. But Judgment Day is that auditing moment when all of those things that have been missed are going to be brought up. We, we have these corrective errors that need to be taken care of. Oh, great. Well, now I know what I need to go work on. Come on back after you have edited those. And us, the Godhead, will be waiting for you to welcome you with open arms. Because otherwise, if you don't correct these things, heaven will be hell. Heaven will be way uncomfortable. And we don't want you to be uncomfortable. We love you. So we're going to audit your books. Correct the errors. You work on it. And then you'll come back and you'll know because you'll feel more comfortable in our presence. Yeah. Exactly. And so we have an auditing moment, don't we? Okay, how am I doing this week? Oh, this is a bad week. I really want this change. Boy, do I need the sacrament today. Okay. Plus or minus five percent, like sometimes when you do. No, that's right. Or, or it isn't going to be like, oh, because you have these errors in your in in your character, you are ever it's everlastingly too late. With all apologies to Alma, that's what Alma believed. Uh, there was more revelation that came later, but for him it was like that's too. You well, you were five points short. Forever and ever, you will be away from your family. And, and out of, no. It's just, you have a chance to correct it. The gospel does that. Yeah. Okay, so I have a question. Yesterday in our gospel doctrine class, we touched on calling an election. Yeah. So does that then mean that somebody who, who has had that experience has sort of gone through Th that audit? Cleared up their, this judgment part. Yeah, the whole idea, you know, it's funny. How often do you hear these days of things like calling an election made sure? Rare. Have you, have you received your second endowment? It's not the kind of thing you go around and no. about. No, but it's also not something we go around talking about anymore. There are a few phrases that uh, by our, our culture that we have used in the past, we don't use a lot anymore. When was the last time you heard somebody stand up in general conference and talk about the believing blood? <laughs> yeah. That used to be, 
that used to be a topic of the reason why some people accept the gospel and some people don't accept the gospel is that they're born with the believing blood. They are, they are Israelites buried in Gentile skins and when the gospel is preached they will hear it. So, so that believing blood will cause them to rise out and they will answer the door to the missionaries where the next guy won't. When was the last time you heard about believing blood in general conference? No. There's something, and calling an election made sure is one we don't talk nearly as much about. And when, when we were looking at it yesterday in Peter, I was actually going to, I was trying to, I want to do a little bit of a research on that. So ask that question about the middle of April. <laughs> because I think we're going to, I think we're going to put it in, in more context the way that the first century writers would have seen it not the way Orson and Parley Pratt would have described it. And I think that'll be really, really different. So I, I guess I'm sort of putting you off, but I'm not ready yet with an answer. Because I had exactly the same question. What does that mean? So, all right. Yeah. I have a, I have a question that when I, when I read that, I wonder because there are people who will say, God should, God should love everyone. What? Right. Why, why I need to be corrected? If he's a God, he's supposed, you know, this kind of thing. So how do we share our belief that without, like, a, get, without making God looks like a perfectionist? Like uh -huh. a, you know what I mean? Like a, because I, I uh, I'm saying this not. I I, mm. I have testimony. <laughs> okay. 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 I try to I try to reconcile these two thoughts. Like, uh, why? Uh, how do we share? Like, uh, tell people God is not a perfectionist. While we need to be corrected to a certain standard. Sure. Okay. She's she's asking an excellent question, which is. How do we not have God be a perfectionist that somehow we have to meet those standards and that why would these things have to be corrected in the first place and how would we describe that to somebody else who's struggling with their own imperfections and say, why do I have to change because God loves everyone. He should just accept me as I am. Okay. Now, I, I think the real short answer to that is what we were just saying is that if God said, I don't care what you're doing in your life. I don't care how many sins you have committed. You can take all those sins. I love you enough. Come back into my presence and live with me. That would be hell. That hell of living with those parts of us that are so incompatible with God and his nature. That's why Peter was talking about we need to become partakers of the divine nature, which means having us become like him. If we weren't like him and were in his presence, that would be hell. That would be eternal torment, uh, a little bit like when you have been in a really dark room and then you open the door into bright sunlight, maybe after you've been watching a movie, and you suddenly open the curtain and it hurts because the, the gap between where I am and where my eyes have dilated to versus that, would, that would be painful. Is, this, is it similar like a, maybe just 
tiny bit of glimpse when I with the little children. They're so pure, and they they just remind me say I I'm not like that pure, and I will kind of like make me feel um, hard to describe that feeling. Is like a um, I I don't want to say not qualified, but I just want to say. Well, we're just not we're just not prepared. It would be like little kids. Can you imagine if we said if we said to a two-year-old, you know, we love Elder Holland. The greatest thing we could give to a two-year-old would be have you sit and listen to Elder Holland for an hour. (laughs) Wow, Elder Holland is here. You sit here and listen to Elder Holland for an hour, and they're two years old. Well, I'm not ready for that yet. I don't say anything so great about this. Okay, I thought, get me out of here quick. Yeah. Well, part of the uncomfortableness of that hypothetical would be our own regret. Yes. That we had yeah, wanted we the opportunity about. to become what we wanted to get out of this life. Yep. Alma 41 is going to talk about the, the pain of knowing of having that knowledge. Yeah, correct? Yesterday we had a real treat in our ward. There's a young lady that always, well not always, but most Sundays, on fast Sundays, stands up and bears her testimony. She's about six years old now. She's gotten up for, for a long time. Huh? And I've talked to her parents. I've talked to him this day. He says, I never know what's going to come out of her mouth. <laughs> she stood up and she, and she just bears it. But her, her testimonies are always succinct and right on point. She says, today I've been thinking, and she says, I, I think what I have is a parable. She says, you know, light comes from Jesus, there's white light, but Jesus is kind of like a prism, and he helps us see the whole rainbow. Huh. And I thought, wow. And she's how old? Six. Six. Eight. Eight. Wow. She's been doing this kind of stuff for I know. What should be like at 12? Okay. Well, well, that said, okay, so now we have about 40 minutes left. Uh, and, and so now we kind of set the table. I want you to be thinking about the process of reconciling with God and, and what that would take. And so here's the task. Here's the task that Jesus w- was trying to accomplish. I, first of all, have these disciples. I have these apostles. And now, as he's preparing to ascend... He's going, to, he's going to leave them, and it's their job to now take the gospel to the world. And they're still pretty flawed guys. And, and how are they going to teach all of these principles? Well, Acts 1 gives us that there's an intriguing little message that, that happens here. Uh, Acts 1. By the way, who wrote, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke or, or whoever Luke was, right? We think that there were two scrolls. One would have been what would constitute the book of Luke. The other one is the book of Acts. So in essence, Acts becomes Luke 2. Written by the same author to Theophilus. Who's Theophilus? Uh, we have no idea. <laughs> it's hard to know whether Theophilus was a... Uh, an actual person that he was writing to, maybe a Greek. It could be Theophilus as kind of a pen name, and that we are all Theophilus is a possibility. We have no idea who Theophilus was because it's never described anywhere else. Okay, but 
in the former book, meaning what? The book of Luke. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach after the day he was taken up, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them to be alive by many evidences. He was seen by them during a 40-day period, and he spoke to them in the kingdom of God. And we all know what happened during those 40 days, right? We all have no idea what happened during those 40 days. Okay? Uh, you, we, could, we can read the four Gospels probably in about, about three hours. We're talking about, he was with them for 40 days in the Galilee, talking to them, working with them, training. You know, it's like this, this mission president uh, training that's going to go on for a month and a half. Okay? Now, it, this is not described anywhere else in the scriptures. We don't have, but we do have some knowledge about what happened during the 40 days. Okay? Let me tell you why this, this is, ends up being kind of a challenge. This is one of the mysteria of, of the early church. What, what, what happened during the... What did he say? What did he do? What was, what was happening here? Okay? So, we have it. And a lot of it is contained in apocryphal writings. Okay? What, what's the apocrypha? The books that weren't accepted. Uh, the, the books that what? Were weren't accepted into the, into the canon. Okay? Now, so that, that raises the next question. What is the scriptural canon? It has nothing to do with being a big shot. A group accepted it. Our, our scriptural canon, okay, is simply a collection of writing that has been deemed inspired by God. And it is the, is, our canon is going to be what we base our theology on. And if we have a question, we go back to the canon. The LDS canon consists of what? Standard works. Standard works. That's our canon. When was the last time, by the way, that we added to our canon? DNC 1977. It was on my mission. Okay. Doesn't general conference? General conference. General conference begins to approach canon. We see that as inspired writings, but it isn't like we're going to say this is because we have it. We put kind of an air of infallibility. If it's in the scriptures, that would be part of our canon. Okay, so that's the canon. Now, so we're talking about a group of writings uh, from apostles about apostles about the things that Jesus did that are outside the canon. They're not part of the accepted canon. Okay, where did the canon of the Bible happen? Shortly after Nicaea, under Constantine, third century. Okay, so these apocryphal writings are the ones 
And, and, and by the way, most of the apocryphal writings that we have, if you want to Google it today, you can read the apocrypha. You can. There's some apocryphal stuff that's Old Testament, but all of these New Testament, the, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, uh, the Acts of Peter, there's a whole list of apocryphal writings. Some of which you read and you go, oh, this is 14th century. <laughs> this, is, this is goofy enough. This ain't St. This ain't John. Some of which are a little bit more questionable. The Gospel of Thomas is one of those. You go, ah, I don't know. But, but let me, but within, within the, uh, according to the Catholic and Reformers, Scripture was accepted canon only if the writings matched current accepted belief or traditions. <coughs> a whole, whole group of writings were found in a place called Nagamati. And, and so we, we got all of these writings coming out of Egypt that were written by early Christians, the Gnostics. And the decision was, well, then do we put those into the canon of Scripture? Well, they, what they were saying at the time was, well, um, is that what we teach now? If it's not what we teach now, then it's probably not scriptural. So if, according to tradition, like for instance, if they found, if they found an apocryphal writing, let's say in the 5th century... And it said, Jesus and, and God the Father are two separate and distinct beings. Would that make it into the canon of Scripture? No. Why? It would overthrow Nicaea. Right? The science is settled. Yes. And anything that doesn't match what we've already taught and believed is not going to be accepted. Okay? So you get that sense? Okay? All right. So, from the Apocrypha, if you and, and Hugh Nibley years ago did this beautiful study on the 40-day period, and he just drew out of all the Apocryphal writings he could find some of the things that those writers said were that happened during the 40-day period with the Savior. Hard, are these true or not? We don't know. But this is what traditionally was said by these apocryphal writings. Okay? So, they include things like this. The twelve apostles were assigned to different parts of the world geographically. They were organized and sent like having... By the way, do we do that this, these days? Sure. The, the, the apostles have responsibilities for different parts of the world. Right? Okay? Ah, wait a minute. There was a pre-existence for all men and women taught in the Apocrypha. Wow, not just Jesus, everybody. Uh, in, the, uh, in the second century, Origen, the, the Father Origen wrote a lot about the fact, and he was drawing from Apocryphal sources saying, yeah, everybody lived before this life. They did. Okay? And then Augustine had him declared a heretic and he was a heretic and Origen's writings were mostly burned. We have just a few of Origen's writings. Okay? But he's drawing from apocryphal sources. 
saying, yep, guess what? Jesus taught them about a pre-existence. Didn't make it into the Gospels, but it was taught during the 40 days. Do we know for sure it didn't, or did it take it out? Well, it could have been. It could have been edited out. You're right. Uh, but, but that's why sometimes these apocryphal things, because they kind of sat on a shelf somewhere, and then they were brought up, they weren't edited <laughs> nearly as much. Okay? All right. So, taught that. Hey, there was a war in heaven, and Satan was cast out, and his angels. They love to talk a lot about this war in heaven. You get a hint of that in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, but there was an awful lot there about the war in heaven and Satan is cast down. That's still addressed in Revelation. Yeah. Yep, yep. But, but in kind of more veiled terms. Okay? Uh, Revelations 12, for instance. The accuser is cast down. Okay? All right. Ah, here's the one that drove the Gnostics nuts. Gnostics means we have knowledge that you don't. <laughs> Secret, there were secret rituals that Jesus taught them things that he didn't teach to the saints generally, just to the disciples. Uh, that used washings and anointings, special clothes, and a prayer circle. Hugh Nibley talks extensively about Christian prayer circles. And he talked about how... Uh, in one of the apocryphal writings, it talks about how husbands and wives stood in a prayer circle and sang songs and chanted things. comes out of uh, several apocryphal writings and that they would change clothes before they did that. There was also washing and anointings in preparation to receive this secret knowledge that's not being given to everybody else. Okay. And again, it gave rise to a whole Christian sect, the Gnostics, who says there's secret information and we don't have the secret information. And Well, what was the secret information? We don't know, but it was secret and we're going to be the keepers of the secret stuff that we really don't know. It's kind of the Gnostics. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very nice to say, well, I know, but I'm not telling you. Okay. Um, most of them have some kind of a creation myth or ritual really built around Adam and Eve. So that part of what they were being taught during the 40 days was about Adam and Eve and the creation. Okay. And then, and now you're, now you're going to find out why it is that these things didn't make it into the canon of uh, the scriptures. There were a lot, and this is pretty consistent among a lot of the apocryphal writings. There are dire predictions about the upcoming and disastrous dissensions within the body of believers that will fracture and change important doctrine and that ultimately the church and the pure teachings will be lost. It will get really bad and then people will go away and it will all be fractured. Now, if you're Augustine in the 5th century who says, hey, we found these apocryphal writings and it talks about the church is going to fall away. What's Augustine going to do with that? I think that's apocryphal. 
The last thing we want to do is bring to light and canonize a bunch of scriptures that's going to say the church is going away. We don't want that. We'll, make, we'll keep that apocryphal. Okay? And that was why it is it got left out. The main reason is that it went counter to what they were believing, that we now have the universal church. It's marching forward gloriously. We've taken over the Roman Empire. Uh, we've changed all the pagans out. Christianity is triumphing. And the last thing we need is a fly in the ointment that's going to say, nah, it's going to fall apart. And they're going to fight among themselves. It will be really bad. And they will kill off the apostles, and there won't be any more apostles. I just looked it up here on my phone, and Wilfred Griggs, who is a professor from yeah. BYU, um, I heard him speak years and years ago, and I just looked up his name, and he has written uh, information about the apocryphal and what is true and what is not relevant to Latter-day Saints. So if people are interested. It's good, it's, there's really good stuff. And again, he was right at the same time as Hugh Nibley was putting that stuff together. But, but you, it, part of what happens with the apocryphal writings is you get, get like little bits of here, and it's like, this will sound kind of goofy, but wow, that sounds really good. That resonates. And it, it's, it's kind of a hit and miss kind of thing. It's hard to know where all these apocryphal writings came from. Yeah? So some of those things that might sound kind of goofy, uh, are they still eternal truths like these? Or? Well, exactly. That's what, when I say goofy, I mean... Some of them, uh, and I can't remember which one I was reading not too long ago, it sounded like a fifth grader had... Fairy tale. It sounded more like a fairy tale. And so what you were trying to do, you were listen, listening to the writings, and you go, this sounds pretty clumsy. But when you listen to the truth behind it, you go, I think they've got a lot of the knowledge, they just didn't know how to put it together. So... Some of these things you're not... <laughs> well, yeah. Right? That's true. And, and, and there are things, again, like the Gospel of Thomas. Read through that. And I'm kind of surprised, real, to be honest with you, the Gospel of Thomas didn't make it in, didn't make the cut. It's close. It's very close. And the language sounds inspired. So, but from that, and, and that's why I say, if you look at the breadth of them, you see these themes rising up, and you look at the overall picture, like looking at a forest from the top down, you, you can see the patterns. And these things are all there, especially when it's repeated among different writers over and over. Okay? All right. Whew. Okay. All right. So. Uh, I'm going to hop over this. That was a good one. Okay. So. If we're moving on in the book of Acts then, they are coming out of this time when, and I'm going to skip just a little bit because some of this I think we have, we've studied in uh, fairly well in gospel doctrine and things like this. Uh, just before the Savior is about to leave, at the end of the 40 days, therefore when they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? We're enjoying all of this, but... Isn't it now? <laughs> You're talking about going. Before you leave, wouldn't it be time to now overthrow the Romans? This would be, a, this would be nice. Can we do it now? Is this the time? Uh, before, before you go, 
And he's going to say, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and where? The ends of all the earth. Your job is just to roll forward uh, and now take this kingdom, this possibility of reconciliation, and, and take it to all the ends of the earth. After he said this, while they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud hid him from their sight. So then we get the ascension, and there they are. They're left. Now they're looking at each other. They got their mission president training. But now where do we go from here? Uh, so, if we look then at Acts 2, let me grab Acts 2. A couple of things I wanted to point out then in Acts 2 in the time that we have remaining. Acts 2. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived. So Pentecost meaning 50. It's the 50th day after Passover. So we get that 40 day period of time. So he's teaching in the 40 days in the Galilee. And then they're going to come back to Jerusalem. Uh, now. They come together. Uh, we get the tongues of fire. Uh, they're all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they begin to speak in languages as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak. Now, for, for the writer of Luke, he does a very careful thing here because he wants you to see that this idea uh, that the Savior has suggested when he says, you're going to be my witnesses until all the ends of the earth. Look at what he does. Uh, verse 5. Among the Jews visiting Jerusalem, there were devout men and women from where? All nations under heaven. So, th th this Feast of Weeks, sometimes th th that uh, Pentecost is called, uh, is, a, is a celebration, and it's one of those five times that a devout Jew should visit Jerusalem, along with along with Pentecost, Yom Kippur, Feast of Weeks. I mean, this is one of those. Pentecost is one of them. So among the Jews visiting Jerusalem were devout men and women from all nations under heaven. The, I mean, if you're, if you're really a good Jew, you will make your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The real, it doesn't matter where you live, you're coming. And, and the building of the Roman infrastructure made it possible to hop a ship, Run, go on the Roman road. You can get to Jerusalem and get to Palestine. Okay, so but these are the devout. Okay, they hear a sound. They're completely amazed. Uh, are not the ones who are speaking Galileans? They have their own dialect. Okay, they're kind of from the south, man. They just sound like you know the way in America we would say. Well, somebody's obviously from the south. You know, they okay talking a little slower. These are the Galileans, but they're speaking Greek. And these are fishermen. We've never heard Peter speak Greek. Man, he's good. Okay. 
How, verse 8, how are each of these able to hear in our own language? And then here comes the list. Here comes the list. They have come to Jerusalem to, to hear this. And he's going to make sure you got Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those living in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asian, Pagaria, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, and the, and the visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes are people that want to hang with the Jews. They're called God-fearers. Hang with the Jews, they just don't want to be circumcised. <laughs> it's a pretty good way to go, and sometimes it's good politically, but we're, going to sh we're showing up in Rome, so we can do this. Both Jews, proselytes, uh, Cretans, Arabs. This is the beginning of the Arab Christian church, uh, because they're there as well. We hear them in our own language, and, and what does it mean? And then some are saying, well, they're drunk. <laughs> they're filling new wine, now, I've got to think that Peter is doing this a little bit satirically uh, when he says in verse 15, They're um, not drunk, as you say, for it's only nine in the morning. <laughs> Get to us about six at Pentecost, and we might be drunk. <laughs> That's possible. But guys, it's, just, it's still the first watch. It's still nine o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk yet. <laughs> is basically I think what he's saying okay then he's going to talk about how this gospel is then taken to, to everybody okay now so then he's going to give them a couple of um, prophecies uh, about Joel uh, now and I, I want to skip over there so here's where I want to go and this is verse, verse 37 when they had heard this, they were troubled in heart and said to Peter and other apostles, What should we do, brothers? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, I'm trying to remember what I put in here. Leave that there. All right. Let me take you back for just a second. Book of Mormon. We have Alma, who's kind of starting a church. He's been he's been there. Um, we're starting a brand new church. There's the waters of Mormon, and Helam's going to be the first one baptized. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Now. Alma's going to give the people at uh, his people who are about to be baptized, he's going to give them a baptismal interview. What are the qualifications to be baptized according to Alma? To mourn with those that mourn. Yeah. More than one and comfort those that stand in need in comfort. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, what would we say is the qualifications for somebody to be baptized? We need, they need to what? Believe. 
need to repent. Faith, repentance. you got to repent of all the sins and then you can be baptized. Because then we're going to see baptism primarily because it talks about baptism for the remission of sins. Right? When does the remission of sins come in the baptism process? To come as you come up out of the water clean? That's what we teach primary kids and it works at that level. I'm not saying we should change that. But when, when does the cleansing come? When the Holy Ghost. When the, the cleansing comes by the Holy Ghost. Can that come prior to water baptism? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay? So the question here is, uh, what are they being baptized into? What's the, what is the process of baptism? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest to you, for, in the sake of time, I want, you to, I want you to see what's happening with these guys. Okay, you're going to be, you need to repent and be baptized in the name of Christ for the, for, for the forgiveness of your sins. But look what happens with this. Immediately when they do that, those accepted this teachings were baptized about 3,000 people of devout Jews from all over the Roman Empire. What do they then immediately do now that they're baptized? Verse 42. They dedicated themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and to community. And breaking bread and to prayer. In other words, those that joined the church immediately did what? They joined the body of Christ. Okay? Yeah? So in a, in a sense, the process of repentance is turning back to God. Reconciliation. Embracing the first law, to love God. Yes, and? To love your neighbor. Right. Now, in the, in the early days of this church, there was a word that was used a lot. This is our third word for today after reconciliation and, you know, okay. Here's the last word. And it's happening with these people in Acts 2. I need you to, I need you to begin to kind of settle into the idea that baptism is a ritual of adoption. The purpose of baptism is to enter into and to be adopted into a family. That's why at the sacrament table we say we're going to all those who drink of it are going to do what? Take upon ourselves his name. We are being adopted like King Benjamin says and we become sons and daughters of Christ. We become new creatures with a new lineage. In the early days of the church, they talked a lot about the principle of adoption. You're going to be adopted in. 
Now, you're being adopted into a community. That's why Alma isn't saying, and for those of you, now, for those of you who want to repent of your sins and be completely clean, now you can be baptized. What was his requirement? Are you willing to do what? Mourn with those that mourn. Comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Are you ready to be part of the family? Are you willing to join the community of believers? Are you willing to be adopted into the body and the family of Christ? And by the way, that's why we call Christ the Father as well as the Son. He's the Son by which he learned obedience, but he's the Father because he becomes our Father in the sense of we are adopted into his family. It's adoption and baptism. And so what's happening here in, in Acts 2, as they're being reconciled, they're being reconciled to who? To Christ. And Christ is going to present them then to, the, to his Father. We're going to become one. Okay, we are reconciled, and we have been adopted. So it's about adoption. Yeah. So in antiquity, they had another concept, which was being born by event. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was born as a carpenter in Nazareth. Right. And then he was, you know, later things would create a birth. Somebody who was elevated from prince to king would be born as king in wherever they be, were found and anointed. And right. Right. And a new and a new life under under Christ, and and the, and the purpose of baptism is it is an outward sign of us demonstrating that we are going down into the waters of death with Him, and we are rising with new life. We are it's symbolic. And Paul is going to teach that over and over and over and over and over and over. Okay, now let me just say though, in our language though, we hear the word adoption. That's not what we use in our current church. We, we use a different phrase, not adoption. What do we call it? Sealing. Se- they used the word adoption at the time of Joseph into Brigham Young, and it, and it rolled into saying we're going to be sealed as families, and it means the same thing. Yeah. I guess I picture it too. It's sort of like a covenant in that there's a name exchange. There you go. Right. And in exchange, you become a one. It's almost still part of the atonement that you become a one with that person, the same way a woman changes, say, her maiden name to her married name. She becomes a one. And they become one. Right. They're, they're the same, they're now the same name. Okay. Uh, and Paul's going to take it one step farther and say, and if you are reconciled and you become one with God, then you become heirs. Because if you're a daughter, someone is, um, we've got some friends of ours uh, that are fairly wealthy and they have, have adopted several kids. Okay? Now, have they adopted them as stepkids or are they heirs to everything that mom and dad has? They weren't born originally into that family, but they were adopted into that family and now they are heirs and they are a full participant in whatever uh, inheritance may fall to them. Okay? Okay. I have a son who's adopted five kids and he's not rich. <laughs> he works for the church. Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. 
And but every time they've taken one to the temple they, uh, to be sealed, they say they are yours as if they were born to you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. So th this idea of adoption, and that's what's about to happen with all these Jews here. Yeah. Well, just like with me and my children, I claim them, they claim me. It's the same with Christ. He claims me and I claim him. Yes, and we are reconciled. That's why I say we have come full circle to a relationship we had before this life. And we're now being brought back into the family. That's, that's, that's what makes it so cool. See, early saints in the first century and during Joseph's time viewed baptism as an ordinance of adoption into the family of Christ and his community of believers. Even King Benjamin noted, because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For you say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. See, I think we get, sometimes again, just in thinking about baptism, it's like, well, we're going to be washed clean. Baptism is far more than that. It is a right of adoption into this family. And because of that, we immediately then, there's a reason we call each other brothers and sisters. Because we've all been adopted into this family that is that of, of one. We are reconciled with, with one another. Okay? Today, we are more likely to word, use the word sealed rather than adoption, especially in temple work. But it, 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 is the, it is the same thing. Um, I will tell you that on... Uh, just Maybe just kind of getting finished here. There's a moment on the plains in, in 1846. I think it happens during the winter. Anyway, uh, they are, they're kind of stuck in winter quarters... Winter is hit. It took him too long to get through the mud of Iowa. They're stuck in winter quarters. They know when the spring comes, they're going to head on their way into the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, they got people strung all over the place. Uh, there's a group called the Strangeites that are cherry-picking saints from winter quarters and hauling them up to Wisconsin. Uh, the church is really kind of uh, spread out and in chaos. And Brigham Young is worried and, and he prays uh, for guidance and direction to receive help. In return to that prayer, he said that he was visited by Joseph Smith. Now, of all the questions, if you're Brigham Young, what question might Brigham Young have from Joseph, now three years after his death, two years after his death, what might he ask? Do you know what his big question was to Joseph Smith on that moment? There he is. He gave me all these directions. Here's what Joseph told him. Two things. One, listen to the Spirit. It will lead you aright, he says. But number two, Brigham said, we don't understand this adoption thing. <laughs> The adoption thing is driving us nuts. We don't know what adoption means. And, and, and Joseph's response was this. The world is now in chaos. 
But before this life, the families of God were organized into very definite organizational patterns. It is the job of the Latter-day Saints to restore that order. And so the principle of adoption is, is being adopted into this family of God. And again, we're going to talk about sealing them into this family of God. But interestingly enough, Orson Pratt once said, Brigham Young described it to me, I drew it out for him, and he says, yeah, that's it, basically. And, and if I had a, a board, I, I, could, I could show you, but it, it looks a little bit like... Um, it looks a little bit like a leaf in the fact it's like there's a line here and then there's another line here, there's another line here, another line here, another line here, another. It's just there are all these concentric lines coming off of this one thing. And the closest we got to it is how he organized the camp of Israel because it was organized in parties of 500, 100s, 50s, and 10s, and families. And he says that was the order of heaven. But all of them, the goal was that they would all be adopted into the family of God where they could receive all the blessings and power that is there. And now we use the term seed. Okay, That's adopt, and it begins with baptism. Baptism is the first rite of adoption. How about that? I know, clear as mud, right? Cool. Okay. Yeah, let, let, let that settle in. Uh, and now, l let me just say that again, as we roll into uh, as we roll into the Pauline epistles, wait till we get to Romans. I just heard another scholar just this morning on my way here. The question was asked: If you could only take one book with you to, uh, you could only have one book in the Bible forever, what book would you take? And he said the same thing that every LDS scholar that I've ever heard say. Romans. And guess what Romans talks about? Adoption, reconciliation. It's all, it's all about this. This is the heart of the gospel as we're getting into this. And in Acts 2, you want to get this. In fact, one scholar I was just listening to said he believes Acts 2 was the gathering of the ten tribes. <laughs> he says all the tribes had come out of all the, the that had been scattered, they all came into Jerusalem. They all received the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then they're sent back out. He says that was the gathering of the ten tribes. Which I thought was an interesting perspective from a non-Mormon scholar. That was pretty good. So, okay. Boy, that dump a lot. Questions on any of that? <laughs> You're looking at me like... <laughs> so what was that anyway what did Hinkley talk about this morning I don't know we're still swimming through this thing we're not sure um, oh I have a question yeah how in the world do you keep it all straight <laughs> uh, that's a good question who, who knows that I did good point <laughs> Yeah, if, but if, you're just, if, you, if you're more interested in the, the Apocrypha and like that 40 days ministry, if you just, just Google Hugh Nibley 40 day ministry, you'll get, it's, it's pretty long. It's, it's about 10, 12 pages of stuff. So anyway, yeah. It's pretty wide saying, you know, that we're brothers and sisters to Jesus. I heard that 
Yeah, I know. It kind of does. We call, we've called him our, our elder brother. And in a sense, I think it cheapens it just a little. It's just, I guess my own. I, I get what we're trying to say, that he was the eldest of all of us. But in, in, that's, but in, the, in the, that's in the sense that he is our a son, as we are sons and daughters of God. So in a sense, that's true. But I think we bypass then the greater importance to say, he is our spiritual father. Uh, and we are adopted into his family, and he, like us, will save his family. So, um, yeah. Well, the main thing now is that you are a great teacher. Ah, oh, thank you. <laughs> you are a very great teacher, and without you, we are not. Uh, the, 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 the wonderful thing about this setting that we have is the chance to talk about this and pull it together in a way. We'd never get away with this in Gospel Doctrine, would we? It would be tougher. So, um, Anyway, uh, bearing my testimony that this, this is the essence of the gospel and that we are far more powerful and greater and we've been far more blessed than we have any idea. Uh, and, I, and I feel blessed to be able to study and look at this, especially as we roll into the holiday season where you see the beginning of the adoption process in a little village in Bethlehem. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Oh, so...